who uh, have been journeying with us over these past many weeks, you'll know that we have spent the months looking at the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, we titled it The Greatest Sermon Ever, referring, of course, to the words of Jesus, not the words that we've been using to interpret and apply them in our lives. As we've been making our way through the sermon, we've been wrestling with some of the big questions, not just of the sermon, but of life itself. What is the good life? What does it look like? Who has it? And how can you get it? When Jesus uses the rich language of blessing, blessed are you, he says, it's really a shorthand way of saying, we want God's very best for you. And then he goes on to talk about what that looks like. What does the good life look like? And we've looked at all kinds of different areas of life, from the management of resources to human sexuality. We looked at forgiveness last week. And this week, we come to a curious topic as we look at the issue of fasting. So if you have your Bibles, I'm going to invite you to turn with me in the Gospel of Matthew. We're again in chapter 6. And we're going to read together verses 16 through 18. Matthew 6, 16 through 18. Jesus says, when you fast, do not look somber as the hypocrites do. They disfigure their faces to show others that they're fasting. But truly, I tell you, they've received their reward in full. But when you fast, put oil on your head, wash your face so that it will not be obvious to others that you're fasting, but only to your heavenly Father who's unseen. For your Father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. Those are the words of Jesus. Fasting. What a weird idea. Why in the world would anybody want to do that? Why would you be hungry and not just pick up something and eat it right away? When you have an appetite, why not satisfy it immediately? I mean, who would ever deliberately deny themselves something. We're talking about the good life. Doesn't the good life mean indulging all your cravings as quickly as possible? Of course, if you've ever been a parent, you know the number one rule of parenting is this. Make sure your kids always get whatever they want the moment they want it. And if you're looking for a good potential spouse or a good potential employee, the number one quality to look for is someone who demands immediate gratification of every desire. So fasting, of course, it's a weird thing. We're not going to try and talk anybody into giving it a shot. You're not going to want to do it. It's a strange, it's an ancient practice. It has no place in our modern enlightened world. It is for for these little emaciated monks who wear loincloths and just enjoy being miserable. That's fasting. On the other hand, though, Jesus did talk about it in the Sermon on the Mount, so we probably should at least talk about it. In fact, if you look closely, it's it's not just Jesus. If you look at people in the Bible who fasted, it's kind of like a who's who of Scripture. Moses fasted. So did King David, Elijah, Ezra, the priest, prophets like Zechariah, Jeremiah, Amos. Isaiah called for a great fast, one that would be connected to social justice and and care for the hungry and for the poor. When Esther risked her life protesting to the king of Persia, she first went out with her friends and they spent three days fasting and praying. And she called on all Israel to do the same. To this day, on Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement, 
Israel will fast. They'll do so in repentance for their sin. You turn the pages to the New Testament, and there one of the first people you encounter is an old woman named Anna, who Scripture says spent a lifetime in prayer and fasting, waiting to see the baby Jesus. John the Baptist fasted. Jesus himself began his ministry with 40 days of fasting and prayer. Now, you don't need to fast, of course. I I just want to tell you what's in the Bible. When the Apostle Paul met Jesus, he fasted for three days. When the early church worshipped with fasting and prayer, they did so waiting for the guidance of the Lord about whether to commission Paul into ministry. So about fasting, we, we want to say at least these three things, and these are in your notes. If you have them, let me invite you to turn to them now. In the Bible, fasting is associated with repentance from sin. Fasting is always associated in the Bible with great breakthroughs in prayer and in life. And fasting in the Bible is often a part of worship. Often it accompanies requests for the guidance of God. In fact, I'll I'll tell you how highly regarded fasting was in this ancient world of the Bible. Maybe you remember this story. A man named Jonah goes to preach at Nineveh. He didn't want to go. He tried to run away. As he tried to run, he was swallowed up by a great whale and then regurgitated on the beach. And so he preached in Nineveh the worst sermon in history. Here it is. Forty days, and then Nineveh will be overthrown. That was his whole sermon. Nothing about God, nothing about grace, nothing about what to do. But still look at the response. Jonah 3, verse 5. The Ninevites believed God, and a fast was proclaimed. And all of them, from the greatest to the least, they put on sackcloth. This is a pagan city. And on their first day of faith, they're fasting. Not just that. The king of Nineveh issues a proclamation. This is what he says. Do not let people or animals or herds or flocks taste anything. Don't let them eat or drink, but let people and animals be covered with sackcloth and let everyone urgently call on the Lord. Jonah 3. I mean, this wasn't just pagan foreigners. Even their animals are fasting. The animals aren't happy about it probably, but but they're fasting. About the only character in the book of Jonah who isn't fasting is Jonah. And maybe the whale, but actually the whale does kind of a reverse fast, doesn't he, when he gets rid of Jonah. So so really it's just Jonah who isn't fasting. Now, I know, I know, you don't need to do this. But just out of curiosity, why was fasting such a big deal in that weird ancient world? We know, in fact, it wasn't even invented in the Bible. It was practiced by ancient sages, men like Confucius. In ancient Greece, Socrates and Plato, Aristotle, all fasted. It was considered a helpful kind of practice for for human flourishing. In the Bible, and then particularly with Jesus, though, fasting becomes a way to experience and depend on the reality of the kingdom, of the presence and power of God. And we'll see what that looks like. If you're looking for a simple definition, here it is. What is fasting? Fasting is the practice of abstaining from food or possibly drink or maybe other things for a period of time. And you get to decide how long that period is. 
but it has to be long enough that you experience some hunger. So like the time between breakfast and lunch, that doesn't count as a fast. My first experience with fasting about 30 years ago, World Vision used to run an annual event, the 30-hour famine. We did it regularly with our young people. I was the youth leader, so I had to do it too. I didn't really want to. Let me say a word about that because some of you may have the same thoughts. Let's just be honest. I love food. I love butter. I love chocolate and pasta and chicken wings, creme brulee. I love hot cinnamon rolls and and barbecued spare ribs. I love freshly baked bread. I love Krispy Kreme and Starbucks and Dairy Queen, Orville Redenbacher, Betty Crocker, Colonel Sanders, Mrs. Buttersworth. They're all heroes to me. Fasting doesn't mean it's wrong to love food. Food is good. Food is God's idea. In fact, Jesus tells us in the Sermon on the Mount, and we covered this weeks ago, he tells us to pray for this. Give us today our daily bread. But our desires, somehow our desires need to be disciplined before they become idols. So the first thing that I noticed when I started fasting was how quickly I got hungry. I realized how much my body insists on having its own way. And I began to learn about the kind of grip that food has on my life. I discovered how I could use food or drink or maybe other substances as a way just of comforting myself, as a way of avoiding facing boredom or the fear of something or a lack of self-worth or inner emptiness, inner emptiness, just a feeling that that my work or my life doesn't have the kind of value that it ought to. I began to learn this when I fast. And then there is there's this. In fasting, I begin to discover that it's possible to have an appetite that's unsatisfied and still survive. I mean, wow. And listen, again, I know you don't need this. I know. But, you know, one of the most famous research studies of the 20th century was conducted in a nursery school. It's uh, it's now called the marshmallow test. Researchers, they would give a marshmallow to a five-year-old and tell them that if they could resist the temptation to eat it for a period of time, that when they came back into the room, they would get two marshmallows. It's kind of like Genesis 3 for kindergartners. You must not eat the marshmallow of good and evil. And then they watched behind a two-way mirror. They watched that ancient human struggle between appetite and self-control. And the results are hilarious as the kids sniff around them and hold them and lick them and, and bite just the smallest bit and then put it back. And, and you can see their eyes tense up with anxiety and their face clench up with uncertainty. Do they eat it? Do they wait? What do they do? I don't know what your marshmallow is. I mean, maybe it's pride. Maybe it's a bad relationship. Maybe it's gossip or being judgmental. We're going to talk about that in the coming weeks. Maybe it's indulging resentment. 
I don't know what it is, but I know what temptation does. It just kind of whispers in your ear. It says, you're entitled. After all, you've been working so hard. You've already resisted so much. Your spouse doesn't really understand you. You're entitled to be happy. And what you want, it's not that bad. And what you want, it will feel so good. What the children in that study were learning to do was a little 15-minute fast. And what's remarkable as they tracked those children, the ones who at the age of five were able to say no, they grew up to have healthier bodies. They did better at school. They were more successful in their work. They had more stable relationships. They had fewer problems with substance abuse. See, fasting is one of those little practices that God gives you to help you be in charge of your own body rather than the other way around. And really, really, this is a great time to talk briefly about the role of spiritual discipline. Spiritual disciplines in the life of a disciple. The Apostle Paul wrote about the life of an athlete trying to win a great contest. This is what he said. If you have your Bible, turn with me in 1 Corinthians 9, verse 25. 1 Corinthians 9, 25, Paul writes, Everyone who competes in the games goes into strict training. They do it. That is, they go into strict training to get a crown that will last. But we do it. That is, go into strict training to get a crown that will last forever. Now, here's a concept that that has been tremendously helpful to me. There's a huge difference between trying to do something and training to do something. We're missing our sports, aren't we, all of us? Missing the chance to be huddled up together in stadiums or in front of TVs watching the big game, millions and millions of people watching and gorging themselves on food as they do. In fact, who are the only people who aren't sitting eating junk food? It's the dozen or two dozen guys who are working away out in the field because what they do requires training, what they eat, how they exercise. It's not just them. I'll make this a question for all of us. Think about your own life. How many of you could go out there right now today and run, not walk, run every step of a marathon? Let me put it a second way. How many of you could go out there right now and run every step of a marathon today if you tried really, really hard? Not many more, I imagine. But my guess is that a lot of us probably eventually could run a marathon if we did one thing. And what is that? If we were to train. What does it mean to train? To train means I'm going to arrange my life around those activities that enable me to do what I can't do right now just through sheer force of my own effort. Because we tend to overestimate what we can do just by trying really hard. And we underestimate what we can accomplish by training. As a general rule, and this is just wisdom about the human condition, as a general rule, transformation involves Training, not just trying. 
It's true in athletics. It's certainly true in music or the intellectual life. And it's no, it's no less true when it comes to, to matters of character or our spiritual life. It's why Paul says to his young apprentice, Timothy, train yourself in godliness. It's why Jesus says, Luke 6, 40, the student is not above the teacher, but everyone who is fully trained will be like their teacher. And so you have these things, these spiritual disciplines. What are they? They are the practices or the activities that train us, that give us power to live in the goodness of the kingdom. Again, I know words like discipline and training, for many of us, those are awful sounding words. They sound unattractive. Who wants to do this? I mean, here, this really is the key. Spiritual disciplines aren't meant to be unpleasant. What discipline you need to practice depends on what you're training for. So if you're training for a race, you need to practice running. If you're training for a pie-eating contest, what would you need to do? In the Bible, for example, one of the great commandments is to rejoice. Rejoice always, the Bible says. Again, I say rejoice. Joy is listed second in the fruit of the Spirit. Often people hear that and they think, I have to try harder to be a more joyful person. No, kills people when they think that their spiritual life is just about trying harder. It's no better than just trying harder to run a marathon. But you can become a more joyful person by training for joy. This involves what's sometimes called the discipline of celebration. And you'll notice If you spent time leafing through the Bible, it has an awful lot to say about feasts and holidays and music and bursts of praise and expressions of gratitude. If you struggle with joy, with joylessness, uh, often what we'll try and say to people is take one day a week and use it to train for joy. Have a day of celebration on that day. You wear what you love to wear. You eat what you love to eat. That's marshmallow day. You listen to the music you love to hear. You surround yourself with people who fill you with joy. Now, listen, there are other people who drain you of your joy. You just tell them, I'm sorry, I can't be with you today. Today's my joy day. I'll catch up with you tomorrow. The purpose of the spiritual disciplines is always freedom. The reason a pianist practices scales is so they're free to play great music without worrying about it, without worrying about the effort behind it. It's true of a great athlete. The purpose of the discipline, spiritual disciplines, is to be able to do what you need to do when you need to do it. The disciplines are a means to an end. And which ones you'll develop will depend partly on the areas of your life where you're struggling. So if you wrestle with gossip, the practice of silence is probably going to help you. If you tend to be isolated, the practice of fellowship will probably help you. How many of us living in isolation are ready to practice the discipline of fellowship? It's coming. If you wrestle with hurry, then deliberately practicing a life where you slow your pace Sabbath rhythms, that'll help you on purpose. 
Drive on the slow lane on the highway. Do that for at least a month. Now let's come back to fasting. Because you see, fasting, as odd a practice as it sounds, is a means to an end. If you, if you never struggle with impulse control, if, if all of your desires just, they just lie there quietly, they wait their turn, if your appetites for food or sex, money, pleasure, power, whatever it is, if they consistently say, no, 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 don't worry about us, you don't need to gratify us right now, seek the greater good, if that's you, you don't need to fast. Don't fast. Or, or maybe, or maybe in your life, you've struggled with an eating disorder. And just listening to this message, it's been hard for you. The topic of food is painful. Can I say if that's you? I'm glad you've joined us. I want you to know that, that what we hope is that this will always be a place where people from all walks of life, whatever road they've traveled, will feel welcome because this is always a place for people who know that they are far from perfect. We're all just a train wreck, aren't we, apart from God? But we're all waiting for God to fill our life and our bodies with mercy and with grace. It may be for some of you, that for medical reasons, fasting is actually not a helpful or recommended practice. Don't fast. And by all means, don't feel guilty because you're not fasting. Our desire always is to live in the kingdom, to live immersed in the love and the power of God, not worried about how many disciplines we can practice. That's that's the wrong kind of righteousness. But for some of us, some of us whose bodies are particularly stubborn about having their own way, Fasting can be a helpful practice. The most important dynamic in any spiritual discipline that I practice is that it be practiced in humility and in freedom, with surrender, with grace. I mean, it's really interesting, isn't it? The psalmist says, Psalm thirty-five, thirteen: I humbled myself with fasting. There's a great problem in the spiritual life, isn't there? That as you advance, you can start to be proud about your advancement. You can even be proud about how humble you are. Jesus once told a story about a religious leader, a Pharisee, who was proud of his status, his spiritual accomplishments. This is how he prayed. He prayed it out loud. If you're curious, you can find the story in Luke 18. He said, God, I thank you that I am not like these other people. I fast twice a week, he prayed. Pharisees had a custom in Jesus' day of fasting on Mondays and Thursdays, which, as it happens, turned out to be market days, where they would have the biggest possible audience for their fasting. And if you walk around saying, look at me, look at me, I'm fasting, I can do it for days, I love God so much, I make myself miserable, look at me, I'll make you miserable too. If you do that, you'll end up worse than if you'd never fasted at all. That's why Jesus describes another spiritual discipline in Matthew 6, one that really helps with humility. Because you can't become humble just by trying really hard. He says this, and you remember we we dealt with this a couple of weeks ago. He says, if you wrestle with this, try secrecy. Do something good. 
do something like fasting. Only don't tell anybody about it. You'll learn that you can live without the gratification of impressing other people. In Jesus' day, when people fasted, they would wear sackcloth, they'd put ashes in their hair, they'd be really showy about it, they'd be be proud of how humble and miserable they looked. But unless spiritual disciplines are practiced in humility and with grace and for the purpose of freedom, they will leave you worse off than if you'd never done them. Now, in the extremely unlikely event that anyone watching here today might really want to try this fasting deal, I want to give you two formats for fasting that you might want to attempt maybe even this week. Here's the first one. That fasting is a way of feasting on God. The time frame that I first used when I learned about fasting was a 24-hour fast, which meant that I would begin my fast at the end of dinner in the evening, and then the next day I would skip breakfast and lunch, and I would eat again at dinner. Now, when I fast, I'm not just avoiding food. What I'm trying to do is make space, make space to be nourished by God. And Jesus makes a fascinating statement to help us with all this. He fasts at the beginning of his ministry. You might know Matthew 4, 2 says that after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, imagine that, Jesus was hungry. I sometimes think that might be the single most unnecessary sentence in the Bible. Really? 40 days, 40 nights? Of course he was hungry. But the writer of the Gospels wants us to know that Jesus was a real human being like us, and he knew the pain of hunger. And at the height of his hunger, the tempter comes and whispers to Jesus. He says, if you are really the son of God, you can tell these stones to become bread. Eat the marshmallow. You're entitled. You're the son of God after all. You don't have to suffer like this. Here's how Jesus answered. It is written, man shall not live on bread alone but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. Jesus meant this literally. Again, this isn't just a pretty saying. See, food literally becomes part of my body. I digest it, and then I dissimilate it. Let's think about a word, a a word that is spoken by a parent to a child. Don't be afraid. Don't be afraid, little one. I'm here with you. That word spoken from a parent, literally has the ability to connect neural pathways in a child's brain. It causes synapses to form that allow the child to regulate themselves, to comfort themselves, to encourage themselves. A word literally becomes part of your body. Your body, physiologically, neurologically, is nourished by words, by their meaning, by the reality that those words express. We live in a kingdom of words, don't we? In John chapter 4, Jesus and his his disciples, they were on a long journey. They'd, They'd gone to a town to get food. Everyone was hungry. The disciples came back to find Jesus engaged there in a conversation with a spiritual woman. The disciples urged him. They said, Rabbi, you need to eat something. But he said to them, I have food to eat that you know nothing about. 
And people will often look at a statement like that and think it's just another pretty saying. But, but Jesus was never really a pretty saying kind of guy. Remember, we've been learning this together. Jesus says what's most real in the world is the kingdom of God growing in our midst. And Jesus is feasting on that, on the presence, on the love, on the meaning of his heavenly father. It's really interesting. Thinking back about that uh, that marshmallow experiment, the key to the outcome is what researchers call the strategic allocation of intention. In other words, if all you think about is the marshmallow, you're probably going to eat the marshmallow. If all you think about is not eating the marshmallow, you're probably still going to eat the marshmallow. But if you start to think, for example, about a favorite song that you love, then maybe you won't eat it. When we're fasting, what we're doing is strategically allocating our attention to God. We take God in. We take the word of God deep into our soul. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. Even when I'm walking through this valley, this shadow, I will not fear evil, for you are with me, Lord. What can separate me from the love of Christ? I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. I allow my body's hunger to remind me that I am not in control. Somebody else is, and that's a good thing. So fasting is feasting on God. Here's another thought for fasting, and this will be the last one, and then we'll close. Fasting as caring. One of the most powerful passages that I know of in the Bible is the 58th chapter of the prophet Isaiah. Maybe you want to turn to that. People are complaining to God. They keep humbling themselves. They're fasting. They're praying. They're crying out, and God doesn't seem to notice, and he doesn't give them what they want. So God tells them the problem. Isaiah 58, 3 to 6, begins with these words. On the day of your fasting, you do as you please, and you exploit all your workers, and your fasting ends with quarreling and strife. It's not the kind of fasting I want, God says. Is not this the kind of fasting I have chosen to loose the chains of injustice, to untie the cords of the yoke, to set the the oppressed free, and to break every bond? Is it not to share your food with the hungry, to provide the poor wanderer with shelter? The rest of that chapter, you know, Isaiah 58 draws such a powerful connection between the power of fasting when it's rightly practiced and passionate justice for the poor and the hungry and the oppressed, that it, more than any other passage in Scripture, has inspired movements of social justice in the name of God for over 2,000 years. See, fasting, when it's done for the Lord, it's the opposite, the absolute opposite of self-centered preoccupation that just says, look how pious I am. When I'm hungry, my normal response is to say, how can I satisfy my hunger? When you come across it in the Bible, that, that idea of, of satisfying the flesh, 
sounds like a religious cliche. In the flesh, I think, how can I satisfy my hunger? When you come across in the Bible, maybe you want to think of this character. You know who that is, right? See cookie, want cookie, eat cookie. Cookie Monster is not big on self-regulation. Folks, you understand, of course, that we live in a day where for all of our vaunted pride and education and technology, many of the smartest people in our culture will spend their lives trying to convince you that you are nothing more than a collection of appetites to be gratified. That's all you are. But when I do an Isaiah 58 fast, I learn not to be so obsessed with my own appetite, and that's a glorious truth. When I do this kind of fast, when my body is hungry, I remember my brothers and sisters who also are hungry and who have no bread and who have no money to buy bread. And that temporary, that small pain in my body It speaks to me of the ongoing, very large pain in theirs, and God begins to grow compassion in me. I train for compassion. And as I do that, I remember I have money. I could be generous with it. Maybe God is calling you to give up something besides food. I have a colleague who prayed about this earlier in the year. God, what might I fast from during Lent? The thought popped into his mind. I don't know if this is the first thought or not. I could fast from coffee. And maybe his next thought was, no, no, not coffee. Anything but coffee. But but the final thought was this. Well, God is calling me to give it up because it has a grip on me that it would be good to be free of. So maybe it's coffee. Maybe it's alcohol. Maybe it's social media. Maybe it's whatever the thought is that when it comes to you, you say, no, no, not that, anything but that. But you ask God to guide you. So here it is. I know you don't want to do this. But if by any chance God is nudging you to give it a try, We're going to set aside this Wednesday as a day of prayer and fasting. No sackcloth, no ashes, nothing showy. But what if on that day, this Wednesday, the church did something together as a way of saying, we want to be free of the clutches of appetite, just that insatiable desire for more, the the weakness of this cookie monster flesh. What if on that day we ask God to increase, to grow within us our compassion for those who are in greater need than us, those who are hungry, those who are caught up in poverty, those those who are desperate? What if on that day we feasted together on the word of God. Fasting as feasting. Fasting as compassion and care. If you want to give it a try, join us on Wednesday. 
And then Wednesday evening at 7 o'clock p.m., as we do every week, we'll gather together via Zoom. We'll spend our time together praying for God who, who can take away the marshmallow urge in our life and allow us to live free in his kingdom. Let me pray for you now as we think about what God may hold for us. God, you know what it is in each of our lives. What is our marshmallow test? I thank you that you make it possible for each of us to to grow into the reality and the power of your kingdom. Lead us, every one of us, in the great adventure of training in righteousness, of growing in your kingdom as people of joy, as people of compassion, of people who know what it means to have the power of Jesus unleashed in their lives. We pray together in Jesus' name. Amen.